Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 67 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday morning, April 3rd, and I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Speaking of 67, that is the Mets' current winning percentage, 667. Oh, very nice. So two-thirds, you're saying. Two-thirds. Now, that would be great and impressive. They'd be on pace for a record of 108 and 54 and be 54 games behind. The Nationals are on pace to be 162 and 0. I'm <laughs> that, not holding no, my breath. That would be impressive. That, that would be a record, as they say. That would be almost as impressive as the live musical performance of Jesus Christ Superstar on Sunday night. I got to say, I did not watch. I was too busy watching the live insanity that was the NCAA Division One Women's College Basketball Championship game. That was game, also pretty amazing. Which also had... Um, um, it had in there were a, miracles in, everywhere. Miracles everywhere. In about a five-second span, you had one of the worst no-calls I've ever seen in a college basketball game and one of the most miraculous shots I've ever seen in a college basketball game. It was such game. a sweet shot. So, you know, I think we both enjoyed our Sunday night television watching experience. Indeed. And so we'll come back to all that in the frivolity <laughs> section. And as, frivolity. As, a little, as a little appetizer before then, we'll talk about some national security legal issues. How about that? Um, let's give a quick rundown, Steve. The table of contents for today, we're going to start with... Um, a use of force uh, associate. So this is sort of an AUMF scope of the arm mm-hmm. conflict question based on a drone strike that apparently occurred about 10 days ago in the southwest of Libya, uh, targeting an AQIM, uh, I think it was a pair of individuals. In any event, we're going to talk about the geographic and organizational scope issues that that drone strike presents. Uh, then we'll pivot back to the domestic side, and uh, we'll have, I guess, a, a trio of, of Trump administration-related issues. What are those? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's a day that ends in Y, so we know there are issues. Um, <laughs> so there actually there's a double-barreled set of issues arising from President Trump's rather unceremonious sacking, um, although now they're saying the resignation of VA Secretary Shulkin and his nomination of the White House doctor, Rear Admiral Ronnie Jackson, to replace him. Um, Bobby, that raises some dual office-holding questions. Oh man, it, it is funny how often this keeps coming up. I know it's like once you see, like once it, it's you see something everywhere. Once you see right, it the right, first time, right? But also, I think a more basic question is also about the Vacancies Act um, and whether the president right. was allowed to jump over the deputy VA secretary in this context. We may not care that much about it here, but that could have big implications for the Justice Department. Exactly right. So it's important for the VA in general, but it also overhangs questions about what the rules of succession are and reappointment, et cetera, in other cabinet contexts. Totally. Speaking uh, of which. Um, so speaking of which, we all, well, I was going to say speaking of the Justice Department. Yeah, right? We also not. have the Attorney General's uh, announcement that he is not, in fact, going to take up House Republicans' invitation to appoint a second special counsel to investigate I, I don't know, FBI abuse and Hillary, I think right, was the general right, right. mantle. Um, but you know, the emails. The, but her emails. <laughs> um, and then speaking of, of, I don't know, Russia, I guess. Yeah. Um, we also have this interesting filing in the United States government's criminal case against Paul Manafort that actually uncovers part of the investigative scope um, at least as Mueller has worked this out with Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein, talk a bit about what, if anything, we can gather from this new public filing about where the investigation might be going. That's good. All right. Um, after that, we actually have more concrete, non-executive branch e stuff to talk about. That's right. We'll we'll go down in the weeds in our our promised review of the Cloud Act. We're not going to go too far into the weeds. We are mindful that some of you are driving or on treadmills. We don't want to cause accidents, but we'll give a uh, not serious ac- accident. It's not anyway. a serious one. Yeah, we'll we'll give an account that's detailed enough to enable you to fake it at a cocktail party, um, and then that will also connect up with an update in the Supreme Court case. Uh, 
Microsoft they, versus not Ireland, not United as we States last versus week. Microsoft, right? Uh, so, where the yeah. government actually has now filed the brief we adverted to last week on the podcast. They actually went, Bobby, a slightly different route than we had suggested. Um, they're going all in for a pure vacateur, what's called a Munsonware order. And so Munsonware. we'll talk a bit about that. Um, and then we have, a, speaking of litigation, although not quite as, as perhaps highbrow, we have two interesting but largely under-the-radar rulings um, in the JASTA litigation. This is the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act brought by the 9-11 families against the government of Saudi Arabia and a whole bunch of private and semi-private plaintiffs. Uh, a defendant, sorry, Judge Daniels um, ruled last week um, in a way that I think is really interesting and perhaps opens the door for some interesting stuff down the road. Um, and last but not least, we best pick, take a minute or two just for a quick oral argument preview. Um, Thursday in the D.C. Circuit, uh, Doe versus Mattis, right, the U.S. citizen who yeah. is still in Iraq. That one just kind of been percolating in the background. Oh, and by the way, Steve, this uh, we're coming back to that uh, old chestnut drink. Um, <laughs> what about what about military commissions? We went through our whole table of contents, and we didn't have an item for the milcoms. Well, so there actually doesn't appear to be anything specifically um, newsworthy it. in the commissions this week. I will just say, I did just tweet about this. Um, I was going back and looking at a transcript from a hearing in the 9-11 case earlier last month. Um, where the whole question in the hearing was whether the defendants would be allowed publicly to identify the countries in which the CIA black sites at which they, you know, were tortured and et cetera, um, were located. Um, and the, here, the transcript is, as you might, might expect, largely redacted. But there are a couple of references to one of the countries Oops. that were not redacted. Yikes. Because here's the problem. I, I think I know what happened. What? I think that whoever was doing the redacting did a control F. And the, oh. the two references to the country that were not redacted were to the demonym for the country. Oh, So instead of Morocco, it says Moroccan. <laughs> that's, that's that is so a Control-F redaction fail, my friend. That's friends. pretty funny. Well, you know. Control-F redaction fail? Is that the, is that the name of control this episode? Control-F redaction fail. I'm, hold on. I'm writing that down. <laughs> I'll do it. I, yeah. no, I'll do it. You start, you you start talking about Libya. Because okay, um, li it's the Libyans. The Libyans, except this time it wasn't the Libyans. It they wasn't? Just, it was the Algerians oh. in Libya or something like that. <laughs> All right. So what the, what the heck's going on here? Um, <coughs> the, okay. So our topical heading here is the scope of the armed conflict. Uh, and you can think of that as an AUMF issue, but it's not just domestic separation of powers law. Uh, it's, it's also UN charter law issues. It's also scope of the law of armed conflicts, uh, field of application, that sort of thing. It's all of the above. So what happened? Um, Saturday before last, so about 10 days ago, there was a report of drone strikes or a drone strike in uh, southwestern Libya. Now, the southwestern part of the country is not the location in which most of the U.S. uses of forces have been taking place. That all happens up along the coastal areas uh, for the most part. So what happened here, we were told, was a successful strike targeting members or, or operational leaders in Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, AQIM. Uh, this is the, the current label, it's been this way for a while, but the current label for a group that previously was known under various headings, uh, such as the Salafist Group for Call and Combat. Uh, it was a like-minded but independent from Al-Qaeda organization originally, but at a certain point through a change of leadership and then a change of heart of the then leader, it did formally uh, swear by to bin Laden and then become associated uh, certainly nominally, at least, with Al-Qaeda, became Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, operating uh, across sort of uh, North Africa and into the Sahel. 
Uh, what's interesting about this? Well, two things. Uh, we want to know if this reveals anything, this use of force reveals anything new, either from a policy or a legal perspective, about how the Trump administration conceives the scope of the armed conflict with al-Qaeda. Uh, there are two different ways in which that might be the case. Perhaps it shows some kind of geographic novelty, or perhaps it shows organizational scope novelty. So let me unpack each of those and then tell you why I don't think it's actually terribly interesting on either front, although watch this space. So first, let's talk about geographic novelty. Um, begin with the U.S. legal position regarding where it believes it is involved in an armed conflict with al-Qaeda and its associated forces. Uh, the U.S. position under Bush, under Obama, and now under Trump across all these decades has been that it's a global armed conflict and it's still going on and that the law of armed conflict applies in all these places. Now, that's obviously contested, uh, but that's been the U.S. government position for a long time. Nothing interesting on that dimension here with a use of force in southwest Libya. Uh, but if you layer in the, the Obama and Trump, I love saying that, the Obama slash Trump policy framework in which the U.S. government chooses as a matter of policy to layer in uh, an additional set of constraints to some extent in, in places that the U.S. government elects to categorize as not an area of active hostilities, that is, in places that aren't active hostilities in the U.S. government's view, some additional policy strengths com come into being. Um, that's something to consider here. So maybe are we learning something about changing status for Libya? Well, it's complicated, and, and it's been complicated. Even under Obama, <coughs> Libya, though Libya as a whole was not categorized as an area of active hostilities, the Obama administration was willing to and did create uh, subnational geographic zones of exception to that, where it would designate, for example, the area around the city of Sirte as temporarily at least an area of act active hostilities when it became necessary in the administration's view to use force there. So it's, it's a toggle. It can be turned on and off. It has been turned on and off. Um, even if it hasn't been turned off here, that doesn't mean there couldn't have been a drone strike. It, it may be that the entire place is currently not an area of active hostilities. You could still have a drone strike. You just have to meet certain higher standards or at least certain standards that uh, don't apply in places like uh, Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. So I don't know if there's really anything novel here. It's a little surprising to see a strike in southwest Southwest Libya, but it's not really unprecedented, uh, which is going to come up again here in a moment. So organizational novelty. Steve, maybe maybe this is different as an organizational matter. Maybe this shows you that the Trump administration has decided to go whole hog on AQIM. Well, we don't know that. We don't know that. And, and it's not the first time we've had some uses of force that are linked to AQA, AQIM. Let me recall an incident from uh, 2015 where it was revealed that we had conducted uh, an airstrike against Mokhtar, Bel Mokhtar, who was a former AQIM terrorist who had broken with AQIM to form his own group, which had a bunch of different names, one of which, I'm not making this up, uh, the Signed in Blood Brigade. The Signed in Blood Brigade. Uh, which it sounds like my fantasy baseball team. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't actually a, have a fantasy baseball uh, team. I'm told you're not a fan. I'm not. Um, <laughs> or, or that you're too much of a fan. In any event. Yes, both. That, yes. Uh, so the Sign and Blood Brigade and, and, and Bel Mokhtar had been targeted. Um, they had affiliated with Islamic State. It raised at the time all sorts of questions that were never in the public record really clearly addressed about had the Obama administration decided that 
the Signed and Blood Brigade, or, or whatever you call this group, uh, were they an associated force of the Islamic State? Was that the theory? Or was it instead a theory that the particular individual, Bel Mokhtar, himself had significant individualized ties to al-Qaeda or to active operational plotting that would otherwise trigger targetability? In short, we didn't really know then, but it was an AQIM-linked uh, airstrike there. Uh, there was an there was another attack in 2017 involving um, what I would describe as sort of a successor group, um, Al Murabatun, uh, all of which is confusing and a mess. And I think it leads us to say that this most recent strike does not clearly show us anything other than when there is a su- sig- sufficiently significant operational planner. Or a person individually linked to threats to carrying out terrorist attacks, uh, both under Obama and Trump, they will use force, including in Libya, against Algerians. And that's what we have here. All right. If anyone's still there, we should change topics, Steve, and try to try to get them woken up a bit. Well, I mean, listen, I think I think the there's a larger point to take away from this conversation, which I I, I realize I am beating a, a dead horse into the ground with a drum. Um, right, to, I'm beating a dead horse into the ground with a drum after closing the barn door. I'm mixing all my metaphors. I love it. Bring it on. Um, which is, you know, there may well be, when you peel away all the layers, a plausible claim of legal authority for this strike. But the sort of scope, both geographically and organizationally, of where and how we use force. And again, as you said, this is not a Trump thing, right? This is just a U.S. government thing. I mean, this is a, a fight I got into on Twitter this morning where I was trying to point out that President Trump's reference to cheating Obama um, was an awkward reference to a president who was very scandal-free. I got, <laughs> I got yelled at by people saying, what do you mean he was scandal-free? What about Snowden, right? right. What about Benghazi? Right, we, have to, we have to have more precise terms. Uh, when you say scandal-free, I assume you're talking about personal scandal. It's personal scandal, but also I, I would include professional scandal in which you are personally involved, right? Like directly involved. Okay, right. right? Okay. Um, you know, I don't. I mean, Snowden. Listen, we we can talk about Snowden. It was not like one day Obama woke up and said, "Let you know, let's go spy on everybody and not do what we've been doing for the last 15 years." So I I have a little bit of trouble. Obviously, the president was at pains, as any president would be in his situation, to distance himself as much as possible from what NSA was doing. Doing. But it, it that both bothers me in principle, yeah. Because I think actually the duty of the president in this situation is to own it and to support the people that your administration did authorize and expect to oh, do I agree. these things. No, no, my, and, my, my point is a different yeah. one, right? My point is, you know, if we want to talk about scandal and a presidency, I mean, oh, so, yeah, no. so 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 even if <laughs> it's you're, not a fair fight, right? I mean, even if your two. tote board doesn't end up with zero for President Obama, even even if you include one or two that I might want to fight with you about, right? Let's contrast that with scandals involving the current president. No, it's cuckoo to even have the argument. It's it's not a fair fight. So I say all that just to say that this is not a Trump-specific issue, but that doesn't mean it is not an immensely important and significant national security issue that ought to be a larger and more consistent part of American public discourse. I mean, we are using force in lots of parts of the world. You know, every every now and then, American soldiers are actually dying in the line of combat. Uh, right, we, I think we had a, a soldier die in Syria from an IED last mm-hmm. week. Right, That's right. Um, you know, there's a legal debate about what is actually covered here, but there's also, I think, a broader policy debate about how well aware Americans are that this is what yeah. we're doing. So this this 
it's certainly, certainly important. No one could possibly contest that. Um, this was publicly reported. It wasn't something that someone else figured out yep. and, and said, uh, hey, I think this happened. The government's not acknowledging that we just did this. This is, to be clear, something the government publicly yeah, described. No, no. Listen, I, 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 don't, I, I don't know how it can be clear. My, my, my sort of objection here is not with the executive branch. My objection here is with Congress because I think that, you know, the sort of every now and then they get really riled up about uses of the war power that they're not super into. Right. And then they just sort of go away for a while. So let me press you a little bit on that. So your objections with Congress. But what if the right description and what if the descriptive case is that Congress is aware they are glad the executive branch is doing this or at least willing willing to go along with it? Then next, time, then next, then time, the then next time they come out publicly criticizing the executive branch for using force on a similar model and a similar paradigm just because it's more of a you know newsworthy event. Perhaps it's a, it's a strike that results in more civilian casualties and yeah. so it looks worse. They're hypocrites. But has, has there been a track record of that? Really? Lo- I mean, so, no. I mean, I think I think the closest is, you know, the sort of the messy relationship of Congress and Yemen, right? And sort of Yeah, how, that might be one. Right, like where, where I think there was a little bit of a sort of, you know, um, I can't believe there's gambling going on in this establishment on, on what was yeah. a legitimate policy debate, but not exactly one where Congress lacked the tools to have been invested in the conversation the whole way through. Certainly agree with that. Uh, I should know because this actually may be a good, this particular strike may be a good example of the not very well appreciated, but we've talked about it a few times, uh, relatively novel oversight framework that the House and Senate Armed Services Committees have been very assiduously developing over the yep. past few years. One of the key, we've talked about the uh, computer, the most recently, the sensitive military cyber operations oversight framework. That was modeled on the sensitive military operations framework, or SMOs, the whole idea of which was to capture the situation where the military uses lethal force basically outside of one of the areas of main main theaters of combat operations. So this would be a good example, I think, of a type of use of force that would indeed have been reported to the Senate and, Arm, and House Armed Services Committees. Uh, if that didn't happen, you know, query whether the, the system's working the way it's designed to. Indeed. But I All bet right. it did. Um, let's pivot to, to sort of Team Trump. Trumpland, Trumplandia. Trumplandia. Uh, today's episode features uh, the uh, the sudden <coughs> and awkward removal oh of gosh. the VA Secretary Shulkin. Uh, uh, pretty obviously because he was not interested in privatizing or really pushing the privatization agenda for the VA. Which to that, be clear, that's that's it, totally within the executive branch's. Uh, there, the president there, has every right to remove right. him. I mean, for that. I mean, whether you think Shulkin is right on that, and I think he probably is, right? The president's allowed to have people who work for him who want to carry Pursue out his, his policies. policies. Absolutely. So, so, the so, issue what, here so is what's not, interesting here? Okay. Then? So there are two degrees of interest here. So the first, sorry, three degrees, because I don't want to lose the first one. Once again, we have a senior government official who, by all accounts, was fired in a tweet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say, but, this, but, but tweets aren't official. Well, uh, so <laughs> DOJ is continuing to argue in the federal district court in Manhattan that the at real Donald Trump Twitter account is not a public forum because the president is not conducting official business there. Right. So, do you think? Come that, on. Th- is that what is that? Let's talk about that. Why maintain that position, which seems like a surefire loser? Is it is it sort of like a classic litigator's mentality? Like, look, I'm going to press my positions if they're good faith. Uh, Rule 11, uh, you know, resistant positions, unless and until some court tells me otherwise, I'm not going to unilaterally disarm on There's this. There's no backup argument, right? Because once it is a public forum, I mean, they can argue it's government speech, yeah. right? But like, if it's a public forum, 
right, then the president's blocking people from accessing the public forum when there is an obvious less restrictive alternative, muting them, right, um, is a textbook violation, is, is especially because he concedes, or at least the government concedes, that it's viewpoint-based. And so there's just, like, I think the government has realized that the only way they win this case is if they convince the court that at real Donald Trump is not a public forum. Right. So we can scoff at them, their prospects, but no surprise that they're at least trying to hold out to get, you know, a no, Mary I'm holding. No, I'm just pointing out that here we have the president on a weekly basis, right, pr- yeah. proving why his own Justice Department is wrong. Well, that, that doesn't surprise me in the slightest because never has there been <laughs> a client who's less interested in altering behavior to suit the litigation environment. I don't know, never. Never has there been a president, certainly. Um, yeah. There, there have been pre- plenty of bad clients through the years. He, he's got to go in the hall. He's up on the Mount Rushmore Fair of difficult enough. clients. All right. So that's um, interesting point number one. Interesting point number two is the um, sort of military piece of this, right? That Ronnie Jackson is currently a two-star rear admiral in the United States right. Navy. This is the longstanding sort of White House physician to presidents. I believe he was Obama's yep, physician. Yep, yep. This is the guy who famously said, that, you know, who famously went on, did the press conference about just the, the excellent health that President, you know, yep. President Obama, by, President by, Trump is in. Sorry. I want to be clear. By all accounts, he's a pretty sterling and capable guy. Like, I, I've yeah, not yeah. seen anything, uh, I've not seen anything derogatory about him. Sterling and capable doctor. I'm not saying he's qualified to run that's a major what, cabinet agency, right. but I just want to, you know, underscore, yeah, like, yeah. this is not some you know, dicey character. No, although it does have the specter of the president putting his buddies into, like, putting people who, like, you know, oh, you're the, you know, oh, hey, you're the gardener. I'm making you secretary of the interior. Sure, right. So let's let's get to, so there's the second layer issue in this three-layer dip. Um, of, which is, which is sort appointing of, someone who's not obviously qualified, uh, you know, sort of a, uh, you know, taking the amateur and putting the amateur in charge. Which is of the why agency. he might, which is why he might run into confirmation problems, um, right? I mean, I think there's already some noise coming out of the Senate that this is not going to be a breeze, right? Well, no, because this this really matters to our veterans. That's right. In the healthcare they receive, or it, more to the point, don't receive. And it should. I mean, I, I you know, I, I think, I think it's a. I mean, I. I think it is a scandal just how little attention we pay as a matter of public policy to veterans and to ensuring that they receive adequate medical care. And Is there an argument, you sometimes hear with judicial appointments, yeah. an argument that, especially for the Supreme Court, we have had people who are not judges yeah. who get appointed all the way up sometimes. Yeah. Is there an argument like that for some cabinets, especially ones where you have a, a uh, some bureaucratic sclerosis and you really need to shake it up? And I'm not saying he's the, yeah. the, the, he's the guy to do it, but is there something to be said for bringing in a rank outsider? Sure. Um, if, if it's someone who you think actually can like knock heads and really restore things, sure. Now, yeah. but keep in mind, right? The background here is Salkin was fired, right? Because I mean, again, I, I I don't know that that's the narrative here. But the legal point, just to just because this was a really fun couple of hours on Twitter last week. Um, all these people on Twitter are like, wait, can you appoint a military officer to serve in the cabinet? I was like, I know that one. Call on me. <laughs> ooh, ooh, Horshack. I'm sitting across from Horshack here. Indeed. Um, so, of course, the short answer, as our listeners hopefully know, is no, because of the dual office holding ban. Right, and this, of course, precipitated, but well, wait a minute, what about McMaster? Right. Like, he's not a cabinet. He wasn't a cabinet Well, but more importantly, he's not Senate confirmed. Right, so for right, purposes right, 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 of the dual right. office holding statute, right. the National Security Advisor doesn't count because it's not a Senate-confirmed right, right. job. A, and so this one obviously is. It's a paradigm case. Dual office holding ban definitely applies. Have we seen any hint of what they're going to do about yeah, this? Yeah, so the White House has said that he will resign or retire. It's not quite clear which yeah. one. I'm sure – I wonder if he knew this and I wonder if he's like, wait, what? So someone on Twitter – I am not an expert at all in military retirement regulations and clocks and how those things work. Yeah, yeah. Someone on Twitter was pointing out that there actually is a real clock problem with his ability to retire as a two-star. 
Um, and like he, he'll he'll basically bump himself back down to one star uh, retirement, or even minutes. like 06. I mean, like there's some there's something about like how if he retired right now, he actually because he's only been two star for a, a sufficiently short period yeah. that he has not accrued the relevant ability to retire at that rank. Yeah, one suspects that no one in the White House may have advised him that he be paying in this particular. Well, no way. one in the White House probably knew about the dual office holding ban, but you know, well, should, if you listen to National Security Law podcast, you would. As we talked about before, I have I harbor no illusion as to whether anyone in the White House listens to this podcast. I, I, if you're out there, oh gentle White House listener, and I and I'm sure at least one of you are, don't have to identify yourself. Find some way just to send us that note. And of course, uh, who knows who will send us that note? It won't actually be a White House employee, say, but I'll believe it. I'll believe it. <laughs> like my grandma's going to send us an anonymous email. That's right. Uh, all right. So then the third the third sort of legal issue, and I think the one that's actually the most interesting here, is what's going to happen to the VA until and unless Admiral Jackson is confirmed. Yeah. Um, so the Shulkin's pre- out. Shulkin's out. And so the president named this guy from DOD to come in and be the acting secretary, um, taking advantage of a statute we've talked about before, the Federal Vacancies Reform Act of 1998, which allows the president, if it applies, to jump over the first assistant, in this case, the deputy secretary. And remind us, what is the trigger for being able to resort to that? So the um, the question is whether the officer who held the office previously dies, mm. resigns, or is otherwise unable to perform the duties of the ah, office. Ah, we talked about this in an early episode. Um, so Shulkin, alive. Shulkin certainly didn't seem to have resigned well, initially. This is where things was, get interesting. The whole story was he got fired and he was on NPR that morning talking about being fired. Um, and he's able to perform the office unless you, you know, blow blow the exception into the right. whole rule so by the, so, saying if you're fired, you're unable. Well, but this is the question. So there's a fight. So the, the fight is whether the Vacancies Reform Act applies when the vacancy is created by the president's own action. That, you know, if that's true, doesn't that basically blow up the exception so widely that it covers well, that, all... you're assuming it's an exception, right? There are folks who say the Vacancies Reform Act is just a supplement, right? It's, yeah. it's not an exception. Um, well, there's a floor statement from Senator Fred Thompson, right, who was one of the drafters of the legislation, that it does apply to firings. There is no more conclusive legislative history than that. Remember when everyone thought he might be president? Oh, gosh. Like, he, he, it was like the law and order glow around him. Everybody loves Fred Thompson. But then he just, it was like he didn't want it. This thing will get out of control. It will get out of control, and we'll be lucky to live through it. Hunt for Red October. Well played. Thank you. All right. Um, so just to, to, to take this all the way Con through. Sonar, Crazy Ivan. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't read Which this. way is he turning, Jonesy? <laughs> to the stern, sir. Okay, anyway. Um, oh, back well, to work. I think we could do Hunt for October all day. Uh, I, that would be a great day. Yeah. But we must continue to okay. unpack so, the vacancy So on the Shulkin thing, I just want to say what, the legal question is unsettled. Right. Um, there are arguments both ways. There's a policy argument, right? It seems like the White House is concerned that maybe their argument's not good. So this is the irony. So I've been on Twitter with Anne O'Connell of Berkeley, although just find out she's moved to Stanford. Congratulations, Anne. Um, Anne is probably the world's leading legal expert on federal vacancies. Um, you know, I, I would love to be an expert on something that that profound and deep. Uh, like, she knows it all the way down. Cool. Um, and is writing a book on the subject. So Anne, I think, is of the view that the better reading is that it applies to any vacancy, um, right? But she concedes, as I, she concedes about my argument, as I concede about hers, that they're plausible, right? right? They're plausible alternative ways to read the statute. The really odd thing is what you said, Bobby. The really odd thing is all of a sudden, like, a couple hours after Shulkin's fired, the White House starts saying, no, 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 no. He resigned. And <laughs> Has why he would they... a public statement about that yet? No. 
But why would so so there are only two possible reasons why they would do that, right? Possible reason number one um, is because someone in the White House actually is on my side, right, or is at least worried that I might be right, right. about the vacancies reform act. Mm-hmm. Um, possible number two is that the president just can't tolerate the pos- like it's the they don't want it to look like he was fired. It's just for optical reasons. Oh, but I think he loves firing people. Well, so look at Tillerson. I think quite the opposite, right? right? I mean, Tillerson was fired, right? Uh, Comey was fired. No, no, now, he, now he, the, said, dude's, the dude's catchphrase is you're fired. Although he doesn't do it in person, right? So right. he's actually a coward. Well, sure, he doesn't bring people in to right. do it. All no. right, so, so, so all this is just to say, um, I actually think that the White House's actions have made my case stronger. Oh, for sure. No, it, it's consciousness of guilt right. of a certain kind. And guys, here's why this matters, right? I mean, I realize that like it matters, of course, for who's in charge of the VA, although I have no reason to think that the person who's been named as acting secretary is incompetent, right? I, I right. think this is just about who's... You know, no, I think but, the concern but it, was but that the, the deputy rules, was... The, pr- the process matters a ton. Well, and the process matters a ton because there's this question about whether if the president fired Attorney General Sessions. Right. Um, who could he slot in Who there could he slot in, If right? he doesn't want to follow the otherwise applicable succession D- order. So the DOJ succession statute is express, right? That in that circumstance, Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein would become acting Attorney General. If the president wanted to, say, put Scott Pruitt in there, although... It sounds more and more every day like Pruitt is also not long no, for this administration. That's kind of a, a Pruitt initiative. Oh, it was, I mean, the rumors all came from Pruitt. Um, but someone like a Scott Pruitt, right? Someone who is uh, Senate confirmed, right? In some other presidentially appointed right. position in the executive branch, who is the president trusts to be more faithful to him than Rod Rosenstein. Um, the qu- Whether the president could do that in a case in which Sessions is fired is exactly what is at issue here. If, if Judge Judy becomes the attorney general, do we have to call her... Attorney General Judge Judy, is it General Judge Judy? You know my view. I don't like calling these people general because well, general is wait, an adjective, not a noun. I was going to say, it's not context. just your view. It is grammatically no, correct know, that these people are not generals. I mean, I'm billions, right? I love the Showtime, the, the, the Showtime series Billions, right? But they keep calling the Attorney General general. I want to no, say, guys. If, if I were an actual general, I'd be super mad about that. Um, the only general who has that, that kind of title, right, in the entire U.S. government is the Surgeon General, who is technically an admiral. Yeah. <laughs> so just to, all right. So I think we've beaten that one into the ground. Uh, also, all that's just to say that, like, I think this is actually a great example of what Ben and Quinta have long referred to as malevolence tempered by incompetence. Right? Here, here's to incompetence. Raise you're, your glass. You're fired. Wait, if we fire him, we're better up here. Okay, I mean, you resigned. You're resi- you resigned. You're resigned. You're resigned. I'm going to resign you. And so all I want is the next time anyone in the White House says Shulkin resigned, show me the letter. <laughs> show me where he resigned. Well, he, he obviously can go on. He can get out there anytime he wants to and clarify this. Indeed. Although it seemed pretty clear that morning on NPR. I, I don't think anyone actually really believe. I mean, this is what we've come to. Like, does anyone actually believe the White House when they no. say he resigned. No. Now, you mentioned a moment ago the prospect of the Attorney General, ah, Jeff Sessions, guy. being fired. Um, he, he took a step, um, and kudos to him and full credit to him. He took a, a good step the other day in a way that might increase the odds of him being fired. What was it? So the as, as, as listeners might recall, the House Judiciary Committee majority, led by outgoing Chairman Bob Goodlatte, had been pushing the Attorney General for a while to appoint a second special counsel to look into. Initially, it was the Hillary email saga, um, but it sort of morphed over time into the Hillary email saga, FBI abuses, you know, Devin Nunes' greatest hits. This, you know, this, I put this under the heading of whataboutism run riot. Indeed. Uh, that's 
That's also a good episode title. That's why I wrote it down. Oh, right I see. said it. All right. What about is a run riot? Um, so right, you have well, if you have a special counsel, we should get a special counsel. Yes, yeah. not how it works. It just well, it's just, you know, obviously it's an attempt to create equivalency or to muddy narratives yeah. in a way that takes the edge off a very serious issue. And, and listen, and it puts. I mean, for for as much as I despise almost everything that Jeff Sessions is doing, it puts him in a bit of a sticky wicket. Because on the one hand, he has members of his own party on the Hill, leadership members pushing him to do this. On the other hand, like it would really damage. Well, he's he's a man of the Senate, yeah. and I think all the pressure was coming out of the, the house. The, the hipsey clown show. Well, and House Judiciary. I mean, I think and House Judiciary, Judiciary, I think right, House okay. Judiciary climbed yeah. into the clown car on this well, one. Well, uh, they, they may have been riding shotgun from before. <laughs> All right, but Sessions threw up a roadblock just to keep going with this. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah, so again, I want to underscore this because it's, it's easy to bag on Sessions for certain things, but uh, there have been things. more than a few times where he's done the right thing, and this yep. is one of them. So. This is absolutely one of them. So, so he wrote a letter back to uh, the, you know, Relative members of Congress, the relevant members of Congress, where he said, "Listen, I have looked at the, I've looked at what you've asked me to look into. I do not think that under the existing regulation, which provides substantive criteria for when we should appoint a special counsel, we've satisfied that because I don't believe that these matters fall outside the ability of the Justice Department to investigate in the normal course and order." Exactly. And so I'm naming, right? I'm identifying the U.S. Attorney for Utah to run point on our sort of ordinary, normal investigation. Now, folks on the left might say that's still like giving this, you know, nothing burger too much credence by specifically identifying a U.S. attorney who's going to run point. You know, I think it's, it's an easy way for Sessions to just say, I'm not doing nothing, but no. Yeah. Talk, talk about letting the best be the enemy of the good from their own perspective. And I think it's, you know, it's perfectly reasonable to go so, that so, far. So for, for maybe the third time, let me say, kudos Jeff Sessions and for the four billionth time, but you're really doing some evil stuff elsewhere. Okay. Evil? Yes, All evil. Right. All right, let's talk about the scope of the Mueller investigation. Sending FBI informants back to their home country because they're subject to deportation? That's evil. Uh, tell me more about it. I don't know about uh, what you're talking about. Or separating parents from their children well, stay, in immigration stay with, detention. Stay with the first one. So the first one, there's a story I think it was on BuzzFeed earlier this week that there was a guy who basically um, was was a cooperating witness to the government, was providing evidence about gang activities like MS-13, and the government's now deporting him. So was it part of the deal that he would get status? I mean, did they welch on an agreement? I, I don't know. If, I don't. The, the story wasn't clear on that, right? I yeah. think. I think that. I think it wasn't clear that they wouldn't deport him. But like, you know, come yeah. on, guys. Well, we could probably spend another hour and a half kind of parsing particular things that we yeah. may or may not agree on in yeah. Justice Department policy. Uh, we'll how, right, how, wait, all right. How about separating parents and children in immigration detention? Yeah, I think that's t- lousy. All right, then we're good. Yeah. All right. So, all right. so let's move along. All right, Mueller's scope. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, speaking of Sessions, right? One of the other good things Sessions did was recuse and allow Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein to appoint a special counsel. And one of the things uh, the special counsel has done, of course, is indict Paul Manafort. And Manafort has tried to Manafort, who's got shall we say, huge perspective criminal liabilities in front of him is looking for ways to avoid them. And one of the arguments he's thrown out, I don't blame him for throwing this out, is to try to show that <coughs> some of the charged offenses maybe are outside the scope in terms of the nature of what they are, these these fraud, these fraud fraudulent financial transactions. Maybe that's beyond the scope of what and, the and special so counsel... Cha- and so he's challenging the authority of Mueller's appointment. Folks might remember he initially tried this as a standalone civil case that got us, that gave us an excuse to talk about younger abstention and that equitable restraint. So now it comes up in the way that it should in front of the, the presiding criminal judge. 
And uh, in response to his attempt to get some of the charges thrown out as outside of Mueller's scope, um, we now have a public document explaining what the scope is. That's right. So the government, um, basically in response to the motion, has filed this fascinating brief, much of which I think is redacted, right? But at least some of which mm -hmm. is not, where it basically says, here's how, like, in broad strokes, we view Manafort's involvement, right, and Manafort's shadiness as related to the investigation into potential Russian interference and collusion. Um, and it actually walks through it, not in like point-by-point -point detail, yeah. but basically to more of a degree than I think any hitherto public document to establish the connection between Manafort and some of the shady stuff that he was doing and the campaign and the broader Russia investigation. So if the, if the black box that is the special counsel investigation is sort of the proverbial elephant in the dark room and people are trying to touch certain parts of it and figure out what it is, here here's a bit of light actually shining on it and you're, you're seeing a big chunk of the, the underlying theory. Of course, it's probably only a very small chunk of it. It doesn't tell us a lot about other cases, but it does suggest that Manafort's not likely to get these charges dismissed. Right. So let me just read the, if I can just read one paragraph yeah. from the from the memo. Um, An investigation of possible links and or coordination between the Russian government in its political interference campaign and individuals associated with the campaign of President Trump would naturally cover ties that a former Trump campaign manager had to Russian-associated political operatives, Russian-backed politicians, and Russian oligarchs. It would also naturally look into any interactions they may have had before and during the campaign to plumb motives and opportunities to coordinate and to expose possible channels for surreptitious communications. And prosecutors would naturally follow the money trail from Manafort's Ukrainian consulting activities. Because investigation of those matters was authorized, so was prosecution. The appointment order authorized the special counsel, if he believes it is necessary and appropriate, to prosecute federal crimes arising from the investigation of these matters. There you go. All right. So I don't expect any adverse ruling to the special counsel on that no, case. But, no, no, but I'll just say, note how here, right, Manafort's, I think, Hail Mary ploy actually produced something that was counterproductive. Right, which was a public statement from the special counsel um, that sort of he had not yet had to make publicly connecting the pieces together. Yeah, that's definitely not to his own advantage. Uh, you're, or the president's. Why do you think? Why isn't he pleading? I think he's. I think he's waiting to see how this motion goes. I think yeah. he's waiting to see if the political tides shift right. in any way. Right. So file your motion to dismiss. Lose and... that. <laughs> see if like you know the president might pardon you. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. see yeah. like exhaust all options before you you know. Yeah. Because once he, presumably a plea deal is going to require him to turn on people. Once he turns on people, there goes a pardon. Yep. yep. So, uh, so again, the pardon watch kind of continues. Indeed. All right. Oh, turning to our next topic, let's kind of do a quick run through of the Cloud Act as promised. Uh, how are we doing on time, Steve? Uh, we are 37 minutes in. All right. We'll pick up the pace. Um, yes, because we don't talk fast enough on this podcast. <laughs> you're right. If, you, if you've... I, so I listen to podcasts on, on 1.5 speed. So, you know, this is a conversation I've had with Christian Turner, you know, our friend at the University of Georgia. Um, and Christian sometimes is 1.5, sometimes even a 2x person. I can't do 2x. Yeah, 1.5, it, it really depends on the podcast. And yeah. I won't name names, but there are people who talk faster than other people. I, I would say that we probably are difficult to <laughs> listen to on 1.5. But I, I think we're difficult to listen to at 1.0. We're, we're, we're the podcast you need 0 0.5 it, for. It's, he whispers, it's not a speed issue. All right. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's not 
only it's not only a speed, a speed issue. issue. All right. Well, there was a speed issue ah, with the mutual legal ass- thank you mutual legal assistance treaty process. Let's let's talk briefly about the Cloud Act. Here's what you need to know. Um, the the background problem there. Clarify unlawful overseas uses of data. Yeah, you know, I actually didn't know what the acronym was. I just can't stand these acronym titles. Well, in this case, it you know it's evocative of cloud storage of data, of course, and and that's kind of getting at what the issue is. You've got companies that are subject to the jurisdiction of a court in one country that have the ability to call data that's that's the company's data, but the data is located overseas and may or may not be about an overseas person. Now, there's two dimensions to this problem. Dimension one, there's a company in the United States. Uh, there's authority under the Stored Communications Act to request data from that company. So the federal government comes in with a, with an order or subpoena requesting production of the data, and the company says, can't do it, as Microsoft said, because that data is actually not stored in the United States. It's stored in Ireland at a server there. Um, and this presents a question under the Stored Communications Act. Does it require uh, only production of data stored territorially, or in, you know, is, there a, is there a limitation at the border? Uh, Microsoft said there, there is such a limitation. The Second Circuit agreed. That was the issue that the Supreme Court was poised to decide in the United States versus Maryland. Um, the idea is it's not that you can't get the data. It's that the U.S. government in that case should have to use the mutual legal assistance treaty process to go to the government of Ireland, make the proper showing to it, and then if the Irish are persuaded by that showing, then the Irish go to the Irish courts, and eventually there's an order that requires production in Ireland and, and so on and so forth. You go through this diplomatic process. Cumbersome. It's not that it doesn't work. But we don't have these agreements with everybody, and they're not lightning quick, to say the least. So uh, there was a high stake here, if you will, for the U.S. Justice Department. Um, That's no longer an issue. The Cloud Act is a big win for DOJ on this score. It makes clear that under the Stored Communications Act, a U.S. company must produce data if they've got the ability. It's in their control, regardless of where geographically the server then holding the data happens to be. Now, Steve, on that particular issue, we talked last week about what that statutory development would mean for the pending Supreme Court case, and you had some predictions. Explain what the Justice Department has now filed in terms of their projection for what should happen next. So the the one thing I didn't account for is the, the Justice Department, basically, as soon as the Cloud Act was passed, apparently went back to the district court and got an order under the Cloud Act. Um, and so when they filed their supplemental brief in the Supreme Court, they're in a position not just to seek a remand to the Second Circuit, but to actually basically say the whole case is now moot because we have obtained the relief we're seeking through other means. And so instead of seeking basically what we thought of last week as a, a remand to consider the effects below, um, the, Justice Mar- the Justice Department is now seeking what's called a Munsonware vacateur, which is basically an order from an appellate court to vacate the decision below and remand with instructions to dismiss. Um, Now, we've talked before about this in the travel ban context. Munsonware is specifically supposed to be about cases where it's the prevailing party who moots the case on appeal so that the adverse party is not robbed of their ability to challenge the decision. That's not this case, right? But if the concern was you don't want – so let me see if I understand that. You don't want the adverse party – the losing party to be stuck with the ruling that they wanted to challenge. And that, right. But here, they're happy. Well, I mean, which way does that cut? So the problem is, right, the the the, the, the appealing party, right, the government, yeah. um, has gotten the relief it's seeking. 
And so, right, as opposed to allowing the prevail, as right. opposed to conduct by the prevailing party that moots the appeal, right, here it's conduct by yeah. the losing party that moots the appeal. So this is this is why it's important the DOJ's filing emphasizes that they think they don't specify I think what the collateral consequences of the existing ruling would be. They, but they say, say they're bad. Yeah, it look, well they say look this this has to do with the extraterritoriality of statutes perhaps in general at least in the investigative context there could be other cases where this ruling would have a substantial shadow since we don't need to decide it and it's controversial let's let's just take this off the table leave the issue more open the way it used to be more open. So, and that's certainly going to be true when it's the U.S. government seeking the data, right? Now, one of the concerns that's been raised by a bunch of privacy and human rights groups is the back half of the Cloud Act. All right, let's talk about that. Right, so the back half but of the Cloud Act. I don't Act, want to get into that yet, though. I have something else to say. Oh, about I'm sorry. I didn't mean end. to jump over it. No, no, that's all right. Let me, let me say something real quick about the front end of the Cloud Act. Yeah. Um, that is the part that deals with what U.S. Right. investigative authorities can get. Um, the companies did get something here also. Um, they got clear authority uh, prior to the stage of contempt proceedings for noncompliance, they got clear authority to move in advance or ex ante to quash or modify a uh, request for production. The showing required is that the target, the uh, the particular person whose communication is at issue, has to be a non-U.S. person or a person not in the United States. Uh, and that there's a material risk that compliance would put the company in violation of the law of another country, either a country with whom the United States has established what I'm going to refer to as a, a Cloud Act executive agreement, which I'm going to explain in a moment, or even even when that's not the case, where principles of ordinary principles of international comedy, comedy, not comedy, uh, would apply. So basically, the court's in a position where it's clear that they have authority to make an interest of justice determination. Um, but the thumbs on the scale here in a big way where that should probably only be a situation where it's a non-U.S. person target. If it's a U.S. person target, you shouldn't be into this process. Okay, the back half, as you say it. The Cloud Act was addressing, at the same time, a mirror image problem where you have a U.S. company that's got data here and that company is also operating abroad, is subject to the jurisdiction of, say, a French or British court, and the French or British authorities do the same thing we just talked about. They serve the company with the request for domestic production of data held overseas, in, in this case, in the United States. Um, this is interesting. The, the Cloud Act addresses a problem in which, under the, under the 1986 Stored Communications Act, that company, say Google or Microsoft, it was illegal under U.S. law for them to comply with the French or British order because the Stored Communications Act did not contain or didn't appear to contain an exception that would allow for production in that case. So they were bound. They're therefore in a pretty tight spot if the French or British authorities then proceeded with the equivalent of a contempt proceeding. Um, and it also, of course, irked the allies in the same way that it would irk us. The authorities there would then be forced to uh, proceed through a mutual legal assistance <coughs> treaty or an MLAT process, which, as we just said, was slow and cumbersome and not everyone has them. So the Cloud Act comes up with this interesting solution. It provides an exception where the companies can comply after all, but only if there's what I'm calling a Cloud Act executive agreement. What's well, a Cloud Act executive agreement? That's where the executive branch, well, let me be more precise than that, where the attorney general certifies and the secretary of state concurs that the other government, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, provides robust protection for human rights, civil liberties, and privacy in particular. 
that's the first condition for having a qualifying executive agreement. So sorry, Russia, sorry, China, sorry, Venezuela, you will not be having cloud ex executive agreements most likely. Uh, although I guess we'll see. Uh, Congress has 90 days to to try to disapprove. I, I believe it actually has to pass and the president then has to sign. Uh, but I'm not 100% sure on that, uh, the disapproval. I, we need to look that up. We'll get back to you in a later episode about it. And then there are further conditions. Uh, the executive agreement only counts if the other country has adopted minimization procedures in the event that their request ends up pulling U.S. person communications. Uh, the request under that agreement from the foreign country, they cannot target U.S. persons or anyone located in the U.S. Uh, the foreign government cannot turn around immediately after getting the data and then pass it back to the U.S. unless there is unless it relates to significant harm to U.S. persons. Um, it has to pertain to investigation of, quote, serious crime. Uh, it has to be particular to a particular person. So no, no uh, you know, fishing expeditions in general it has to be a particular person or selector. There must be articulable, credible facts underneath it. And there must be some form of court or independent review of the request uh, on their end. So when those conditions are met, then the United States can have these agreements with, and, and probably will have with the UK, certainly, and probably various uh, EU counterparts and maybe some of our, our Asian allies as well. Uh, Australia certainly will be in the mix and New Zealand, so on and so forth. That'll probably be it. And so the select group of countries that make it through these wickets and have the right yep. kind of request, they can go directly to Microsoft there in their countries and make them produce from within the United States. And the company cannot resist on Stored Communication Act grounds. And then, that's and, a big change. And, so, and it's a big change. And I think it's one that, you know, I, I understand the abstract, but you can see why there's some concern among privacy and civil liberties groups that this would basically make it a lot easier for those countries, even if they're countries with whom we have relatively good relationships and countries that are relatively progressive in their legal thinking um, to access data of U.S. persons, right? Uh, well, yes and no. So on one hand, uh, it is always the possibility that, well, let me start with the main reason why I'm not too worried about that, because the request has to be for the communications of non-U.S. persons and persons not in the United States. It will- Better store on U.S. servers. That, that happens to be stored, you know, it's on a Google server yep. in California. Yep. Um, so it can't be done on purpose and it can't be targeted that way. Now, will there be incidental? Will, will the production that's of the information? Oh, uh, yeah, sure. And that's why the part of this that requires minimization procedures so that they do not keep or disseminate. No, no, I know. So, but, but, persons. But, but so we've talked before about how minimization procedures are only as good as they're enforced. Right, and if there's yeah. no, and I don't, it's not at all clear to me here what the mechanism is for enforcing. There the is some, so the statute does contain some obligations of the U.S. government to collect data on on what happens to try, so we can try to know this. Look, I think it all boils down to who are you doing this with. If you're doing this with the U.K. and with with France and a few others, um, are are privacy advocates going to be happy about this? Well, of course not. But then again, I don't think they were going to be happy either with the front end of the Cloud Act and, and weren't happy with the front end of the Cloud Act in some cases, not others. Uh, but I think on the whole, this is a pretty reasonable solution to a really serious pressing problem that required a solution. Um, this is, I think, probably as good an outcome as was likely to happen. I'm frankly kind of surprised that it managed to get get done at all. But of course, the way this got enacted was attaching it to the omnibus spending bill. So that was the last train leaving the station in Congress for a while. And so whoever managed to, to pull the strings to get it in there, well done. Um, all right. That leaves us one last thing to touch on, Steve. Uh, some JASTA action. JASTA. Is it JASTA or JASTA? What's the correct? Is it like JASTA like Rasta or JASTA like Shasta? Who, who, who is the keeper of the canon for these things? We are. 
Well, that, well, I say Josta. All right, we're going. We're going we're with Jostafari. Jostafari. Like we're going Jostafari. No, right. I, I look forward to hearing what follows into that heading. Well, so we've talked a little bit before about Josta itself, the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. It's the bill that Congress enacted over President Obama's veto in 2016. Um, the bill has two principal features. Most of our discussion thus far has been about the second part of it, which is expanding the scope of liability of private defendants under a statute known as the Anti-Terrorism Act um, and opening the door to claims that, for example, private banks could be held liable even for aiding and abetting acts of international terrorism that kill or wound U.S. persons. Um, the front half of JASTA, and actually what got all of the headlines, was the foreign sovereign part of it. Um, basically, the front half of JASTA was motivated by a series of losses that the 9-11 families had experienced in trying to sue the Saudi government, various Saudi entities, and some Saudi individuals based on their belief that at least some of these folks, some of these groups, were indirectly responsible for the 9-11 attacks themselves by funding them, by facilitating various you know, members of al-Qaeda, etc. Um, those cases before JASTA was passed had generally lost on a combination of grounds, one of which was personal jurisdiction problems, that the federal courts couldn't actually exercise jurisdiction over some of these Saudi entities. With regard to um, Saudi Arabia itself, there was something called the whole tort rule, um, which requires that if you're going to sue a foreign sovereign under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act for a non-commercial tort, that whole tort has to occur in the United States, mm. whereas the claim against Saudi Arabia is not that they committed the attacks, it's that in Saudi Arabia, they took steps that indirectly... Funding went... is the claim? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so JASTA was meant to sort of open the door to broader liability for foreign sovereigns in this context, basically by overruling the whole tort rule uh, and by saying that where the claim is for an act of international terrorism on or after September 11th, um, the non-commercial uh, tort exception of the FSIA would apply even if the tort did not take place within the United States. Interesting. Um, and so that presumably opened the door for exactly this lawsuit, right? That, that in fact, this is the claim the families wanted to bring. We've talked before about how the back, you know, even as Congress did this, they sort of denuded this provision of most of its force by making it impossible to collect any damages. <laughs> but hey, but here's your certificate of judgment. Well, so which, you know, quite possibly for the families is enough. Um, so last week we had two rulings by uh, Southern District Judge Daniels, basically the first major rulings in the post-enactment of JASTA um, sort of iteration of the of this in Ray terrorist attacks of September 11th, the sort of this long-running case by the families against Saudi Arabia. Okay. Um, in the first ruling, he dismissed a whole bunch of the private defendants for lack of personal jurisdiction. Okay. Um, and what he basically said was, whatever JASTA does, it doesn't change personal jurisdiction. Okay. Which I actually think is completely right. All right. Okay. Um, and so insofar as there's an earlier Second Circuit ruling about why there's no personal jurisdiction over these entities that lack, you know, connections to the U.S., say la vie. Um, and let me just, quick tangent, the Supreme Court on Monday, right, denied cert yeah. in a related case, Sokolow versus the PLO, where the Second Circuit had also said that you couldn't bring an ATA claim against the PLO, not a foreign sovereign, uh, but a foreign terrorist organization, um, right, um, because there was a, the PLO actually had due process rights, interesting, right, foreign because, entity. Because they maintained a presence in the United States. No. No? No, 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 right? Ooh. No. It's actually, it's, it's different because at least in defensively, 
right? Litigants who are held in the court um, ought to be protected by due process, and there's at least a sufficiently minimal relationship between the Palestinian Libera- Liberation Organization and the U.S., Kind of hmm. debatable. Yeah, um, that that I, I'm gonna have to go read that. No, that it's, it's interesting. That sounds a little. My instinct is that it feels a little circular. Um, to a point, but it's also inconsistent with the government's position in, for example, the Guantanamo oh, cases. For sure. Well, and, and, and in all the other cases I know of where this issue has right. arisen, where if you have a physical office here, that's right. one thing. But if you're a foreign organization or individual. No. So there's a little more. I mean, I don't yeah. want to undersell the opinion, right? Yeah. The, the Second Circuit did find some justification for fine, like some physical presence here, but interestingly, not yeah. enough to justify the assertion of personal jurisdiction. All right, we're going to dig into that a little further. All the, but So the Trump administration filed this interesting CVSG brief, call for the views of the SG, where they said, you know, we're not sure how we feel about the Second Circuit's opinion, but you don't need to take it up. Um, you know, one of those sort of yeah. equivocal, you know, yeah. we don't love this, but we'll live with it. Um, and the Supreme Court denied cert. So all consistent, no personal jurisdiction, fine. All right. The more interesting ruling from Judge Daniels was with regard to the claims directly against Saudi Arabia, where he denied the motion to dismiss and said, yeah, this was kind of the whole point of JASTA. So they had made a, what, a sort of a, the whole tort type motion? They made it. They made a. So that seems like a surefire loser under the current statute. They did 12B1 and 12B6, right? So that that right. that, that they, that they, that the, the allegations in the complaint weren't plausible to the point that they allege what was necessary to even get within. Let's do some CIF Pro for our non-law listeners. Uh, 12B1 motion is a motion to dismiss for lack of uh, Subject jurisdiction. Subject matter jurisdiction. A 12B6 motion is a failure to state a claim. It, and in that kind of motion, you assume everything the plaintiff says in the complaint, you assume it's all true. This isn't about what can well, be proven. You assume everything that's plausibly alleged in the complaint true. is true. And you draw all inferences in favor of the plaintiff as well. So you, the whole idea is, look, let's assume the best case scenario for the plaintiff. Would there be a claim if they if they can later on prove all this? Is it plausible? Right. right? So so this is where there's a 2008, 9, 9, 2009 decision, um, Ashcroft versus Iqbal, actually Iqbal, in our yeah. universe, yeah. Um, that actually really dramatically constrained um, the ability of federal courts to hear some of these cases, it used to be, right, that under a case called Conley versus Gibson, there was this no set of facts rule, right, where right. where the a motion to dismiss had to be denied unless there was literally no set of facts on which the allegation on which the claims could be proven. Um, Iqbal tightens that by saying no, the the allegations in the complaint aren't accepted as true unless they're plausible. So I can't just sue somebody and allege that there are Martians, you know, running right. around. Causing all kinds of trouble. Seems pretty reasonable. Um, the devil's it, it, okay. Well, the devil's in the details of how it's administered. You and I will fight about Iqbal some other time, my friend, um, because <laughs> because Iqbal is an abomination. I, I knew you wouldn't be able to resist that. an abomination. Yes, it's an We've abomination. We've got evil and abomination. Listen, for all of the other ways that the federal courts are making it hard for plaintiffs to sue, right? To add this increasing layer that at the motion to dismiss stage, before you've had discovery, you have to substantiate your allegations to yeah, get over I, the I threshold. I thought you said that the, the the test was you have to make plausible right, allegations. and what makes and what makes an allegation plausible? Well, that's why the details matter. All right, fine. The devil's in the details, but the details had to suck. Uh, maybe. All right. All right. Anyway, so, but um, just back to Saudi Arabia for a second. So Judge Daniels denied the motion to dismiss with regard to Saudi Arabia, um, but said, you know, to sort of walk carefully through the next little minefield, we're not going to have full-fledged discovery right away. We're going to have jurisdictional discovery to make sure that your allegations about the members of the Saudi government do, in fact, have some evidentiary support before we move into full-fledged discovery against the Saudi government. This is a uh, this is a case that's going to go to Bleak House dimensions, I think. Well, in and terms this is listen. I mean, this time. is so. This is the whole point of Josta. This is going to take years, right? And regardless of who wins, there will be no money at the end of it. 
<laughs> so other than that. But, but you know, I'm taken by your point earlier, which I hadn't really paid enough attention to, for at least some of the family members, uh, getting paid is not necessarily the highest priority. Getting a statement, yeah. attributing responsibility would, I suspect, for many of them be a, a really big deal. So not not nothing. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, again, I, I think... My problem is not from their perspective, right? My problem is with the false bill of goods that was sold to them oh, by yeah. Congress. No, no, that's that that's a separate right. deal. Uh, really quickly before we turn to frivolity, um, yep. Thursday at, Thursday morning, the DC Circuit is hearing the appeal of Doe versus Mattis. Um, you know, if you've listened to this podcast ever, uh, <laughs> right? This is the U.S. citizen who is still being held as an enemy combatant in Iraq, and the appeal is on the very narrow question of whether Judge Chutkin had the power to bar Doe's transfer to a foreign side. Sovereign. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, let me let me rephrase this. To require the government to provide notice. I think it's 72 hours. 72 notice, hours advance notice before they transfer Doe to a foreign sovereign. Presumably because within those 72 hours there'd be an opportunity right. for Doe to seek emergency relief, a stay of the transfer from the district. Right. Court. And in, in the whole idea is in that case Doe would Doe's attorneys would then be able to know how to frame the argument in terms of either. Fear of torture or abuse if transferred, or lack or of legal the, authority under Valentine. Right. So the Valentine issue, which is more of the sweeping, like, well, we're not saying he's going to get tortured necessarily. We're just saying you can't transfer right. away U.S. And, and just to sort of illustrate this really quickly, I know we're going to talk about this more next week. But just to illustrate this, you know, we have extradition treaties with a whole bunch of countries, um, but the terms of those treaties vary, and there are countries with whom we don't have extradition treaties. And so the Valentine question is: their positive legal authority to effectuate this transfer could very well depend upon to which country the government is seeking to transfer him. That's right. And then overlaying it, as we've talked about previously, there's the Munaf issue, which yep. is, uh, you know, for military, for people captured in a setting of armed conflict overseas, though a citizen, if you're captured in that setting, and, and whereas here, this is not Munaf, this is actually a stronger case in some ways, you might be transferring them to a place where they also have citizenship and actually have, you know, grown up and have most of their ties and connections, is that an exception, as Munaf was, is that an exception? So, so interesting stuff. Um, the panel, just in case folks are curious, is uh, Judges Henderson, Srinivasan, and Wilkins. Yeah. Um, so a Bush appoint, uh, sorry, a George H.W. Bush appointee um, and two Obama appointees. Yeah, it, it's a good panel. These are serious judges who will take these issues. I suspect they'll find this all very interesting and will really dig into the doctrinal. Uh, I'm, I'm going to uh, go out of what I think is not a crazy lib and say I think it all depends on Judge Srinivasan. I think he, ideologically, I think he lines up in the middle of the, that three judge panel. I think that's a completely fair description, and I think it's it's really hard to know because look, I think some the political science sort of attitudinal yeah. model says like, well, just tell me who appointed these guys, and no. I'll tell you who's going to win. That is not going to you know maybe it'll shake out that way, but I doubt it. Especially where a citizen's concerned. So I think some of the DC circuits, to my view, harder to defend impulses in these cases tend to arise in cases where you have non citizens, -citizens. right? Where you have a citizen where no one is disputing their constitutional rights. I think the calculus is more complicated, right? And, and just knowing, you know, so Scalia is the great example yep, right? Hamdi. So Scalia and Hamdi took a very there's the libertarian streak you don't know for sure just because someone's a republican appointee that they're going to have this always you know, side with the pro government, government view so right. well this is part of why we wanted to save a a more thorough yeah. discussion for after the argument because then we'll have a better sense of where the judges seem to be um all right so with that Frivolity. All right. Jesus Christ Superstar. All right. So Sunday. Okay. So first of all, I uh, hope everyone had a nice uh, Easter and Passover weekend. Um, my family, we did lots of Easter egg hunting and then capped it off that night with nothing less than the live 
performance of the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. Now, Steve, you and I took some heat on Twitter or some gentle ribbing for, from some listeners who have uh, not enjoyed as much of the focus on sports and our frivolity. And they said, guys, you know, en- enough of the macho stuff. How about some macho on- stuff? That's that's us. We're, we're macho. Macho. Macho men. Oh, yeah. uh, no, they me, didn't say me, that. Me and my obsession. My word, not theirs. I was going to say, my obsession with the Indigo Girls proves my machismo. <laughs> Well, that's what's funny. So they, they challenged us. The challenge was, you know, talk musicals. Challenge accepted because I mean, come on, man. First of all, we're we're always happy to talk. Should about I start singing from the, Guys and Dolls? Anything goes. You, you Fiddler, have, dude, you got a microphone right in front of you. Pirates of Penzance. Uh, well, let me say something about this. So there've been this. There's this sort of vogue right now for doing the live the live performances of classics. I think Rent Some, is next, right? Yeah, Rent is next, which is pretty cool. Some have not been so good. Uh, the Peter Pan thing I thought was pretty lame. I, my wife liked the Grease uh, deal. I thought, eh. um, <laughs> but Jesus Christ Superstar I thought was fantastic. Um, this is the classic 1970s rock opera from Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, I got to say, I was extremely skeptical that this would be very appealing. Um, but there were so many things I liked about it. I want to flag a few. First of all, I want to I cite the musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there was a really cool decision made to put the, the orchestra, or in this case the band, you know, right there up on stage and, and really show them interacting with live performance uh, in a way that – was much more organically connected to the to the actors and the singers um, than you would otherwise normally have, and I thought that was super cool. Especially liked uh, Brandon Niederauer, who, whose name I probably just mispronounced, but this is the guy who is the original uh, kind of lead guitar guy in the original production on Broadway of School of Rock, and like he's all grown up, and he and he's now you know was completely awesome. Uh, him and his Les Paul really stood out in the opening. Uh, um, Number so great music, uh, Brandon Victor Dixon, mm. who is famous for being Aaron Burr in Hamilton, um, stole the second Hamilton, uh, second Aaron Burr. Leslie Odom was the original. R- okay, is that right? Yeah. Wait, do I have this wrong? He was the second. He's. I thought. So. Look this up. Okay, I'm sorry. I may have this totally wrong. Maybe I was misinformed. Either way, this guy was amazing. He was so good. Stole every scene. Um, his his acting and his singing was terrific. Um, Several people pointed out that the, the the Aaron Burr story as to Hamilton and the Judas Iscariot story as to Jesus. There's some kind of interesting parallels of of, of, of <laughs> right. uh, you know causing the death. Yeah, of so your he's friend. the new. He's the he's, he's the, the new. The, he's the new. Aaron, he's the new Aaron Burr. Okay, well that makes me super want to go see Leslie Odom. Yeah, was of the course. Original. Come you're, on, you're, now. you're of course totally right about that. Uh, and the last I'll say like that the got Hamilton commercial. Yeah, <laughs> um, I was skeptical about Alice Cooper yeah. having the Herod role. He was pretty good. It, it fit. That's a very hammy role, and he did it really well. And John Legend did. I, I think his, you know, acting was maybe not as great as you might like it to be, but he, boy, he was John Legend when it came to the singing. And the acting actually was pretty good. Um, but I think he outdid himself in the commercial for Google's new voice tool, <laughs> where, where he and uh, uh, Chrissy Teigen were having trouble working the remote control on their uh, on their DVR or whatever, and it was a, it was really pretty funny um, watching that little scene of domestic life. All right, so that's all I've got to say about that. What about you? What did you like this weekend? I liked uh, so so I liked most of the sort of NCAA women's final four. I thought all three of those games were closer and more interesting than all I three know, of the men's what a games. 
But the officiating, man, I just, I think Louisville got hosed at the end of the regulation in the semifinal. I think Mississippi State got repeatedly hosed. There's a woman who plays for Mississippi State, Tiara McGowan. She's 6'7". She is a beast. And unfortunately, she falls victim to what I've experienced way too often in my life, which is big person referee disease. Big people must be committing fouls? No, no, big people can't be fouled. Oh, they so can't be fouled. Like, well, was, you're not fouled because you can take it. That's right. So there's replays where she's coming down with the rebound and getting clotheslined in the head and falling down, and they're calling her for travel. Right, whereas if that had been a guard, Come absolutely would have been. Yeah. So, so I thought the, the drama of the games was fantastic. I thought the officiate, if this had been the men's Final Four, the officiating would have been front page news yeah, this morning. Yeah, that bad, huh? But it was, you know, whatever. Um, but what I'm really getting stoked for, so some of our good shows are back. Silicon Valley is back, season five. Um, Billions is back. Tip to tip ratio. Seriously. Um, <laughs> but the 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 thing I'm most excited for is actually coming up in a couple of weeks. It's the season two of Westworld. Okay, so I've seen about half of season one. Why did you stop? Just other stuff, too much stuff. You got to get back on that bandwagon. I am going to, because I can see on, already. On that virtual bandwagon. I can see already that there will be problems with you wanting to review episodes. So I will get back on, all caught up. We've got uh, the 20 On one condition. Yes. You got to see Black Panther, I man. Know. I mean, seriously, like, I what is. I think next week I'm just reviewing Black Panther, whether you've seen it or not. All right, fair. That if is I a, can remember, it's been so long. Oh, poor Bobby. Uh, all right, well, that is a gauntlet that has been thrown down that I can perhaps use oh, against Karen. Also, wait, even even more pressing, perhaps? Yeah. I'm, go- I'm going to go see Ready Player One tomorrow night. Is there Ooh. any chance you're going to have seen it by next week? Um, no. Because right. if I'm going to see a movie, um, it's going to be Black Panther. <laughs> you need to spend some time at the theater this weekend. All right. Um, last note, just as we're leaving, I just got an AP push alert at right about 11 a.m. Central Time um, that Alex Vanderswan, the Dutch lawyer, right, in the oh, middle yeah, of this yeah. Mueller situation, um, was sentenced to 30 days in prison for lying to federal agents in the Mueller probe. So there you go. Um, we have our first sentence from Bob Mueller. Uh, first hide on the wall. It's not the last. Probably not. On right. that note. Uh, we will talk to you guys next week. Uh, follow Bobby at Bobby Chesney. Follow me at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Uh, tell your friends. Tell the people who won your bracket pool because you know it wasn't you. Um, and we'll talk to you next week. Stay safe out there. Adios.